welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And welcome to the third episode of Measure Mentality. This series is sponsored by and in collaboration with the IEEE Standards Association, a collaborative organization where innovators raise the world's standards for technology. IEEE SA enables the collaborative exploration of emerging technologies, the identification of challenges and opportunities, and the development of recommendations, solutions, and technology standards that solve market-relevant problems. If you're new to Measure Mentality, in this series, we interrogate the metrics of success in artificial intelligence by exploring the following topics. How is success measured today in AI? What positive future can we envision with AI? And finally, what measures of success can get us to that positive future? In this episode, we interview Jonathan Stray and Laura Musikansky to explore which metrics we can actually optimize for when it comes to AI, and if it's possible to utilize subjective metrics for success, such as happiness or well-being. Jonathan Stray is a visiting scholar at the Center for Human-Compatible AI at UC Berkeley, where he works on the design of recommender systems for better personalized news and information. Jonathan previously taught the dual master's degree in computer science and journalism at Columbia University, built document mining software for investigative journalism, and worked as an editor at the Associated Press. Laura Musikansky is the executive director of the Happiness Alliance. She served as the chair of IEEE's 7010 recommended practice for assessing the impact of autonomous intelligent systems on human well-being. She was also the co-chair for the well-being chapter of IEEE's ethically aligned design. Laura also co-authored the Happiness Policy Handbook. As a general disclaimer, the views and opinions of guests of Measure Mentality are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or affiliations or the views of IEEE or IEEE SA. And now it is our pleasure to present and share this interview with Laura and Jonathan with all of you. Today we are on the line with guests Laura Musikansky and Jonathan Stray. Welcome to the show, both of you. We're so happy to have you and we're going to get right into it. So today we are talking about optimizing AI and what measures of success we have and what measures of success we want, especially when it comes to things like happiness and well-being and just welfare in general. So Jonathan, we're gonna start off with a question for you. How do you think in your own work, success is measured today in AI, especially with a lens towards subjectivity and objectivity? Oh my, okay. Well, um... So I work on recommender systems mostly. These are the algorithms that choose content for social media and news aggregators, right? So when you hear about the algorithm that Facebook uses or Twitter uses, this is normally the the algorithm that people are talking about. And uh, how success is measured is in terms of uh, behavioral metrics. So colloquially engagement, right? Did someone click, like, share, comment? And they're kind of a funny measurement because they are objective. Somebody did something, it was recorded in the data, uh, but they're used as a proxy for something subjective, right? So we use a click to, and we hope that means that this was valuable to the user. But of course, we don't actually know what it meant that someone clicked on them. And that difference between 
what we hope it means and what it actually means to them uh, gives rise to all kinds of problems. So for example, clickbait lives entirely in that difference. And Laura, same question to you. Yeah, I'm gonna come in here from two different perspectives. One, the happiness movement and the other systems change. So in the happiness movement, and you've heard about this because you know about the world's happiness, happiest countries. In the happiness movement, subjective indicators are survey-based and objective indicators are observable. So an example of a subjective indicator would be how happy are you or are you satisfied with your life? This is really important information. And the only way to get this information is to ask somebody. And then an objective measure would be, for example, what is your personal wealth? Um, or what are, how many miles do you travel in your commute? Today, the measures that we're using at a systems level for AI are profit, power, popularity, and persuasion. Now, this is very different from the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. So looking at this question from a systems level and from my own mission of being a change agent for happiness, well-being, and sustainability in the world, we can say that the system in which profit, power, and popularity, and persuasion are the metrics of success are based on some core assumptions that today, with advances in happiness economics and happiness science, we know are not true. So the first is that the more money, or the more power, or the more popularity that you have, the happier you will be. And so the more profitable a company is, the better off are its shareholders and its stakeholders. And the greater the gross domestic product, which is the sum of all goods and services produced in a year, the higher the quality of life that pe for people in that, in that country. This is not true. The other assumption is that the more um, money you have, the more profit that you're going to make, the better you're going to be able to meet your, both your basic needs and your higher needs, if we can think of that as Max Neef's needs or Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we meet those needs through, through, through consumption and acquisitions of intangibles, such as security through insurance, et cetera, um, which is also not true. So these two core assumptions, and there are others, are really important. Um, they're held by, I'd say 95% of the nations in our, in our world. <laughs> with the exception of Bhutan and maybe some of these happiest nations in the world, such as Finland, they're important because systems have essentially four different layers. And the most important layer in terms of leverage point is our assumptions, beliefs, and values. And if we're going to change a system at its root, that's where we approach it. It's fascinating because it sounds like we are recognizing that sometimes the things that we are measuring and the assumptions that we're making off of those measurements, like the fact that a like equates to someone actually caring about some, something or someone actually liking something, or the fact that money equates to happiness, we're recognizing we're making these wrong assumptions, but I don't know if we've necessarily figured out what to do next. And so I'm wondering if either of you have anything to say about what we do with this, this newfound awareness and knowledge. I'll jump in. I like to think about um, when you're lost and you finally find your way, um, it was clear the whole time you were lost what the way was. It's just that you, you couldn't see it. 
one of the best techniques for finding yourself, like if you ever actually get lost in the woods or lost in the desert, is to go back to where you last last time you knew actually where you were. And I think that for humans, we're lost. <laughs> We've decoupled ourselves from the environment. We've decoupled ourselves from each other. And so how do we go back to where we last knew that we really had well-being, we really had sustainability? And this isn't anything that is um, requires a lot of education or a lot of thought. This is just sort of what grandma told you. <laughs> If you had a good grandma, hopefully you did. So I think that that's something that we have, we have that knowledge inherent in all of us. And we are seeing, we are already seeing this emerging in, in different guises. Um, maybe that's the wrong word. We are already seeing that emerging in, in, in different ways of being, which include social cause entrepreneurship, that includes sustainable, reporting, sustainability reporting, ESG reporting, CSR reporting. Um, and the work that I've been doing has been in the happiness movement of bringing a version of Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Index to people all over the world to really inspire a new economic paradigm at the grassroots level. And that's why John brought me in to um, work with him on the 7010 universe, <laughs> I'm sorry, on the IEEE universe of bringing, which brought about 7010, the recommended practice for assessing the impact of AI on human well-being. Um, and if you read that standard, you will see that it is something that hopefully you will see that it's something that makes sense. And you'll say like, oh, obviously, because I think that's the path forward. It's not some denouement. It's going to be, of course, this is naturally the, the, the way that we should go. Uh, Jonathan, do you have uh, any thoughts on the same question? Yeah, I, I think what do we want is the right question. Most of the work on um, algorithmic media uh, is focused on what we don't want, right? So we've seen an enormous amount of work on you know, health misinformation, uh, abusive material, spam, and so forth. Uh, to some extent, I view these problems as a byproduct of never actually specifying what it is we do want these systems to work. So what are the positive goals of social media? What are the positive goals of uh, algorithmically filtered news? And um, if we're going to drive the system towards positive goals, we've got um, at least two problems to solve, right? So. One is, is what are these uh, goals? How do we, um, you know, what process sort of leads us to agree that this is what we should look at? Uh, and um, this is where um, uh, Laura's work on 7010 and, and all of her colleagues on that, on that Herculean effort is really interesting, right? Because it says, well, let's not ask a bunch of engineers to tell us what's good in life, right? That's not what they're trained to do. Instead, it brought together um, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Laura, I, th I think you looked at 1500 indicators from uh, governments and uh, international organizations around the world. And it sort of triaged them and said, okay, which ones of these are potentially relevant to AI systems? Um, so within that, you know, you, you're gonna pick particular sub indicators for particular applications. So if you're talking about um, news selection, you might be looking at civic engagement measures, right? Are 
um, you know, people turning out to vote? Are they um, involved in the political processes and so forth? And then uh, the next problem is, okay, let's say we know what we want. How do we actually make an AI system do that uh, to optimize for something else? Um, and this is where a lot of my work focuses. Um, uh, as Laura said, the, the best tool we have for getting at subjective states is asking people. So you can ask people, right? You can put a, a survey in front of users and say, so when I showed you that, uh, you know, you won't believe, uh, you know, this one weird trick headline and you clicked through it, was that actually what you wanted or not? Uh, and you can take that type of information or you can take much more um, uh, sort of personal and effective states. You can ask people like, you know, did it make you feel angry? Did it make you feel sad? Did it help you? Uh, do you feel it helped you to achieve uh, an important goal in your life to uh, see that diet video as opposed to that online course, right? And you know, you don't want to presuppose the answer. There are there are times when a diet video is what you want. Um, so you can collect this information, but this information is very it's a very sparse, very noisy, um, very long term signal, uh, as opposed to uh, yes, they they replied to it. Uh, so we are just starting to develop the technology to try to understand how to adjust the behavior of AI systems for these kinds of uh, much more subjective, personalized, um, rare signals. And when I say rare, we have, um, uh, in most of the systems I've looked at, we have between uh, a thousand and uh, a billion times less data uh, on people's actual reported experience than we do on how they behave. So it's really quite a challenge. And one of the, the main lines of research is how do we get better information from people about what's actually going on with them? And there's a variety of ways you can do it. Um, uh, there's one project that I know that is investigating paid survey uh, programs. So search engines, for example, have, um, you know, Google has on the order of 10,000 paid search raters where they show them a search query and then they show them you know, here's the original algorithm, here's the change we're going to do, the results uh, for, um, you know, some, some improvement they hope to make, and they say, which one do you think is better? And they do this all day, every day for thousands of people, and that's how they collect feedback on, on how well they're doing. We don't do this for most AI systems. In particular, we don't do it for, for social media and news aggregation and, uh, you know, product selections on Amazon and, the, and all of this, this recommender stuff. So that's one direction. Another way you can go is sort of increasing the bandwidth between the users and the system. So rather than I'm going to try to tell you everything that's important to me in my response to a single survey question that you chose, um, we're starting to see experiments around natural language control of these systems. So what if I could literally say to Twitter, uh, you know, I want a more diverse set of news sources today or, um, I could uh, tell YouTube, um, you know, that that first episode of that online course was interesting. Um, you know, please, please remind me to to watch episode two every time I log in. Right. Uh, the I think the image that many of the people in the space have in mind is the sort of personal assistant model. Right. If, if I could afford a personal assistant who could, uh, you know, review all of the world's media and sort of edit it and select it for me, you know, and, uh, you know, the president of the United States has this, right? They get their daily briefing, which has an intelligence summary and a news summary and so forth. Um, what would I tell that personal assistant? 
And so that's, that's I think, ultimately the goal is to be able to uh, direct these systems in very natural and rich ways, as opposed to trying to guess what someone really wants, what they really think and feel, what's really happening in their, li in their life based on the, you know, the buttons they're clicking and the words they're typing publicly. So that's, that's the hope. You both have either mentioned or alluded to uh, standardization of some kind. And Laura, you specifically named some of these assumptions that we've fallen into um, you know, as, as a society or as societies. And I'm wondering for both of you how, like whether it's possible to standardize without falling into those assumptions. Um, and if so, how we might begin to do that. And Laura, we can start with you. I think that the 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 inquiry is is the perhaps the main objective here. Um, instead of trying to find a result, is to really go into a into into inquiry. And of course, you know, my perspective from AI is that of hoi polloi. I don't. I'm not an AI person. I I know very little about AI. But from my understanding of um, of AI, there are three layers. Um, and and I this understanding emerged from the special issue that we did um, through International Journal of Community Wellbeing, um, AI and how AI and community wellbeing intersects, which Jonathan was one of our authors for that. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, there are three layers. There's the, the impacts that AI has, which is what we're talking about. Well, how do we measure those impacts? Um, there are the applications, and then there is the development of AI. And um, and I spoke earlier about systems and how the bottom layer is that assumptions, beliefs, and, um, and values. And the other, the other layers above that is the, the layer of uh, how you design a system. And then there's the patterns, and then there's, there's the outcomes, right? The impacts. Um, but thinking about, you know, what comes up for me in listening to Jonathan and hearing you is that, is that any kind of system that we have, whether it's an economic system, a social system, a governmental system, or an AI system, they build up, they build up, they build up, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they topple. Um, and then everything just goes, you know, goes pear-shaped, or it's a regeneration possibility. And we actually have the knowledge and the understanding now that we can um, sort of get ahead of that curve. And what the direction that we through that special issue that I talked about and in my own thinking that it would benefit us to go in in terms of understanding the impacts on our own personal well-being, our satisfaction with life and other dimensions of well-being on ecological sustainability is hyperlocal. And so that piece of I don't trust AI, which is what my partner who's extremely intelligent and has watched me do all this stuff. And I ask him and he's, I don't trust it. And I think that he represents most people who are not in this field, goes to that, that, that bottom layer, that development piece. And how do we make this something that is the, the, the language and the currency of everybody? And I don't think it's insurmountable, um, it, but it's not easy. So that you, if you're developing and are a part of the decision of what those impacts are going to be, then you will be able to actually engineer for your own future well-being. And then there's this really core piece 
which is that assumption about our, our current society that we need to bring in, right? Which is what really makes us happy. And that's others. That's in being in <laughs> being in community with others, having like we today, right? It just right now, looking at your faces, I've never met you before, but it it, it makes my heart bigger, right? It makes me more of a person hearing somebody talk about something beautiful, it makes your heart bigger. Um, so those are big picture ideas, but they're not insurmountable. And I'll say this one other thing is that the stories that we tell about ourselves about who we are, change who we are. Over 2000 years ago, we did not identify ourselves as individual people, as having an individual soul as having a direct relationship with ourselves or with God. And then this religion came along and said, you are an individual, you have an individual soul, you can have a direct relationship with God. And that changed everything, right? And you couldn't undo that story. You couldn't undo that, that concept of yourself. And AI is bringing in a whole new story about ourselves. And so we get to choose what that story is. We actually can change what that story is and we can change who we are with our stories. And so I bow to you and the work that you're doing because you are contributing towards this in a big way. Jonathan, quick, I'm sorry. wondering. Uh, Jess, sorry, uh, quickly. Jonathan, I think your um, mic is scraping your shirt a little bit um, just uh, in, in your last answer. So just if, if you could just hold it out a little bit. Um, I just wanna make sure we, uh, hear you clearly. Sorry. Gotcha. Just go Thanks. Thanks for pointing that out, Dylan. <laughs> so Jonathan, I'm wondering as an AI developer, let's take the ideas that Laura just laid out where we can actually measure and understand this the sense of happiness that we feel, even just being in this Zoom room together. So how do we bottle up that feeling of happiness and quantify it and put it into an algorithm and optimize for it, let's say in like a recommender system or something. Is this something that you think can be done? I think a version of it is possible. So I think to answer this question, um, the first thing is to, is to realize uh, what I hope is a fairly obvious thing, which is that uh, to really work on these problems, it's, it's not just a technical fix, right? You have to talk about the people involved in the system. And so, um, uh, the level of analysis that I normally use is I look at the team building an AI product plus the product itself, right? Uh, so I look at, um, okay, so quantification. Uh, so to some extent, yes, I think we can quantify this, this feeling of like, hey, I'm hanging out with these people and like life is good uh, or, you know, all of the other experiences that make life worthwhile. And uh, really all that I'm saying is that it's possible to ask people because of course, if you can perceive that, you should be able to express that. And um, you know, Laura's work on um, happiness indicators and metrics is sort of all about this. And uh, you know, I, I I defer to her expertise and and you know other other folks who are working in that field about how to do that. But assuming we have some question that we've validated as giving some sort of useful signal about people's experience, um, then there are a bunch of things you can do with it. So first of all, you can make that uh, a goal for the team. Right, um, you know, we live in a world of um, OKRs and KPIs, and um, you know, I, I, my sympathies, and also you're probably in a good place if you've never heard those acronyms before. But um, you know, these these are just fancy words for for metrics used for management, right? Uh, so um, so you monitor these measures uh, with your users. 
So that means some sort of um, survey research. And then the team can use these measures to decide, for example, uh, do we want to launch this product change? So most AI systems in production, uh, there's um, go through hundreds, if not thousands of changes every year. So the engineering team will make a change and then they'll test it on a small subset of users and look at how various metrics change. And so the question is, what metrics are you looking at to make that change? And then there's a second level, which is to actually use that algorithmically. So you have um, you know, a, a bunch of machine learning models that try to learn what will get you to uh, click on something. Well, you can also train them to learn what will get you, what will get them to tell you that they had a positive experience for whatever uh, type of you know, positive experience you're trying to get at with a question. So this is, this is possible and it's starting to happen. Um, it's not very widespread. It's not really driving these algorithms very much yet, but, um, uh, but most of the major platforms at this point are using some sort of survey questions to drive algorithmic optimization to some degree. There's still a bunch of unsolved problems there. Um, I also want to say that um, there's an even more valuable uh, type of information source for getting at these sort of deep subjective experiences, which is often neglected in sort of um, algorithmic discussions, uh, which is, of course, um, uh, qualitative uh, methods, you know, user research, ethnographies, talking to people, right? You, you can't know what to measure unless you talk to the people who are affected by the system. So, uh, and in fact, you can't even know if the question you're asking is measuring what you think it's measuring without talking to them. So there's this sort of, uh, I view it as sort of this pyramid of different types of data. Um, uh, at the bottom is uh, information that's produced anyway as users um, use the system. So engagement data, right? User behavior data. You've got gigabytes and gigabytes of this stuff just pouring out of the system through logs. And it's cheap and it's plentiful, but it's kind of ambiguous and it doesn't really tell you what you want to know. And then the mid-level is uh, these sorts of survey measures that we've been talking about a lot today. And uh, again, it's at least a thousand times less uh, prevalent than the behavioral data. It's much more expensive to collect, um, but it's much more precise, right? You can ask uh, in principle any question. Uh, and then at the top of the pyramid, you've got unstructured method, you've got um, qualitative user research, you've got um, going out and, um, you know, talking to people in um, particular segments of your audience, right? We, we talk a lot about, you know, the effect of AI on various marginalized groups. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's a start if you're really concerned about people's well-being, right? Um, you, you should talk to, um, uh, you know, anorexics who are on TikTok. You should talk to uh, homeowners whose formerly quiet street might be now full of cars because you're, uh, traffic uh, directions application is putting everybody on their street and make it unsafe for their children, right? There's the whole universe of human experience is available if you actually go to talk to people. And so I think that the trick here is to uh, combine these types of, of uh, you know, expensive and scarce through, uh, expensive, scarce and accurate all the way down to cheap, plentiful, and uh, not that useful, right? And figure out how to integrate these different types of, of information, both at the managerial level and the technical level. And as we, I loved what the, the phrase that you used about the, the whole universe of, of possibility and, and of human experience. And I think that's one of the fascinating 
design uh, challenges, I guess I'll call it, of, of AI, of recommender systems, especially when you start moving towards an international context, is that there's just so many variables and there's so many contexts that you're trying to optimize for. And Laura, in your work, um, you, you have looked at this international context in terms of happiness. And I'm curious about uh, your perspective on what, what might change when we move to that international context and then maybe how, how can we optimize across those different cultures and spaces? Um, I'd say what's most important right now in the field of, of our understanding of what makes us happy and what brings about well-being is really testing what our assumptions are, even in the happiness and well-being movement. And with AI and all of this data, this is a phenomenal opportunity to do this, and we're already missing that opportunity. So for example, um, Seligman, who brought about the whole positive psychology movement with Csikszentmihalyi, he's been doing a big data project to understand you know, what makes people happy. And it's coming up with a reinforcement of the system that we already know isn't the main cause of our happiness. So shopping, um, spending money, these kinds of things, we already know that these things are bring us into the hedonic treadmill or other, you know, the the continuing on the Easterlin paradox. Um, so, if we can take this data and really bring about a new field of understanding, an interconnected, interdisciplinary understanding of what it really really does make us happy, what really does bring about our well-being and our sustainability, then we'll really make progress in the field. If we continue with the same assumptions and the same findings without really testing those and looking at those from a interdisciplinary perspective, I think we're probably doomed um, because we simply are not living in a sustainable manner. And this is already evidence of that. And, and we already know that. And that's a really tall order. Um, that's no small thing because that's asking for a shift in the way that we're doing education, the way that we're, you know, the 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 um, the understanding of how we live our lives, right? That you choose a profession and that's what you you stay and you develop and develop and develop until you become more and more an expert in this one little thing. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I do think that you know, I'm old enough to remember when technology was going to be the big answer and everybody's gonna have a lot of leisure time. And now here again, we have a new level of technology, which is potentially the answer. And also we very much recognize uh, that it's potentially our doom. And taking a, a different perspective on that, not in terms of, is it our savior or is it our doom, but really a perspective of inquiry I think is the path forward on this. And as we reach the end of our interview to close us out, we just wanted to ask both of you if you could maybe describe and paint a word picture for us of what your ideal future would look like given that the world has taken into account some of the things that you've laid out today and that we have this ideal AI system that is really taking human welfare and things like happiness into account. So if you could maybe describe what that kind of system looks like and what that kind of future feels like. Jonathan, why don't we start with you? Gosh, okay. So I think 
I want to describe this from two perspectives. One is, uh, you know, all of us, the AI users, and the other is the AI builders operators. For all of us, I think what it looks like is systems where we understand how they work and how to control them, right? So um, if I'm concerned that endlessly doom scrolling is making me depressed, um, I should be able to have a dialogue with that system in some way. And that could be buttons and sliders. That could be literally a conversation where I'm like, hey, you know, it's making me kind of unhappy to like uh, see all this stuff all day uh, and sort of figure out some sort of move towards uh, a more uh, healthful situation in terms of my consumption or my usage, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I should be able to uh, tell Instagram that I want to use it less and maybe it should help me do that. This, this type of thing from on the, on the back end for the operators, I think where you go is something that starts to look like um, sustainability accounting. Um, I'm thinking of um, accounting for externalities and carbon markets and um, some of the environmental, social, and governance indicators that are starting to flow through the financial markets. Um, you know, it's, um, I've seen at this point only two or three published graphs of the trade-off between a well-being measure and uh, an engagement measure. Um, but there is a sweet spot, right? There is this question of, you know, how much can I turn up the good for you knob, uh, you know, the eat your broccoli knob before people stop using the system, right? Um, and to have, to make really good choices around that and to find that sweet spot, that balance between the, uh, and this is literally in an AI, AI papers and are now using kale versus broccoli to model this problem in abstract settings. How do I find the balance between the, or sorry, the um, kale versus chocolate? Um, that, that makes much more sense. Um, how do I find this, this sweet spot between kale and chocolate? And that requires um, different kinds of quantitative information to flow through the ecosystem about what people's experiences actually are. And uh, Laura, your vision of, of a possible ideal future. I love what Jonathan said and would build on that, that, that AI becomes something that is natural and easy for us to manage and to uh, co-create and that we do it for each and all of our individual and collective self-actualization of becoming who we were really meant to be and that we really are connected to all the different parts of ourselves and to each other and to our ecosystem. I'm really curious, Jesse and Dylan, what is yours? <laughs> no one's ever asked us that before. <laughs> Dylan, do you have one? I, I do, but I believe this is also a great place to plug our uh, first, uh, the first webinar and podcast episode of the Measure Mentality series in which we go into much greater detail, which we would love to get into um, in this episode, but unfortunately we are out of time, Laura. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for asking. And we would of course like to thank uh, Laura and Jonathan for being on the show today. Uh, in our show notes, we will make sure to um, note where you can follow up on their research and on their work and possibly get in contact with them. But for now, thank you, Laura and Jonathan for joining us. Lovely, thank you. Thanks so much.
thank you so much again to Laura and Jonathan for joining us today for this riveting conversation. And as we've been doing for all of the other episodes for the Measure Mentality series, we are now on the line with John C. Havens, who is coming from IEEE Standards Association and also guest hosting this series with us. So John, welcome onto the Zoom call. Thank you so much. I always love my after Zoom calls with Jess and Dylan. We enjoy them as well. So let's just get right into it, John. What were some of your immediate reactions from this interview? Well, I, I love Laura. She's a dear friend. Full, so full disclosure, if I need to say that, but we've been friends for years. And I always love when she talks about happiness and well-being because she is so specific and knowledgeable about the ways that oftentimes people new to that space don't recognize how much objective data as well as subjective data is around these, these areas. So right away, I think one thing that's exciting is, and hopefully encouraging, people go, oh, I didn't realize you could measure these things in these ways, and it makes it very specific versus kind of esoteric. Jonathan, uh, beyond just being one of the smartest people I know, a data scientist kind of realm, does a fantastic job. Uh, uh, I think about my old job a couple of jobs ago. I was uh, at, a, at a PR firm and really understands like marketing language and logic of how these algorithms can be used really effectively to do the work that people want the, them to do. But he also made some great points about, you know, when you track this, it doesn't necessarily mean that. So in the intersection of Lauren Jonathan's expertise, I think there's some really exciting um, insights that you guys were able to get from them about what we're going for with the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciated the conversation we were able to have about those subjective spaces and those objective spaces. And um, it definitely made me uh, think that the line between those spaces might be a little bit more fuzzy than sometimes we um, give it credit for. I think we spend a lot of time in a lot of these conversations and measure mentality and then also in general on the Radical AI podcast talking about the, the humans behind the algorithms um, and I think in this case, we got a different lens onto that in Laura's work uh, with happiness and then Jonathan's work with recommender systems of what that, uh, what that means in a slightly different context than some of the other places that we've looked so far, um, which, which is really exciting. And I was really struck uh, as someone coming from more of like a soft science humanities background um, with, with thinking about happiness in general, happiness and technology, and then can we optimize technology and measure, you know, the success and ethics of technology based off of happiness. And I really appreciated Laura's viewpoint on that. Yeah, actually, I'm going to put on the alternative cap. Now I'm going to put on the computer scientist cap since you just gave the social scientist lens. And I found it really interesting in this conversation hearing from Jonathan about taking some of these abstract concepts and these high level uh, difficult, challenging ideas that we were talking about with Laura, like measuring happiness and what that even means. And then and then talking about how we actually put that into an algorithm because it's it's kind of it's a complicated process and i really appreciated that he pointed out that sometimes there's a trade-off between optimizing for some of these things that we're talking about in this series like well-being and happiness and human thriving and actually having people be able to use the app and having the app be something that is interesting and engaging and usable. And, and this doesn't even have anything to do with business metrics. This isn't necessarily about user retention because of accuracy metrics. It's more about user retention because the app is just usable in itself. And so you can have an app that makes you super happy, but if you never ever go on it, then 
then there's really no app to be used. So it's, it's like this interesting tension between the two and trying to find that, that perfect balancing point between finding this optimization for these well-being metrics, but then also still having an app that is effective and, and usable for users. Yeah, agreed. And, and this is something to be very clear, like, again, coming from a marketing and PR background, it is not, quote, evil or unethical to want people to buy your stuff, right? That's a key part of why you make products and services. And also understanding what is the value that they will find. It's a fantastic idea to, you know, sentiment-wise on Twitter, they said X. Well, they use this brand name. That probably means they like it or don't, whatever. So I've done that work in depth uh, 10 years ago with uh, Gillette. It was fascinating. It was early days into what I would call a very basic type of machine learning. And anyone is free to correct me if I get this wrong. But there was a great company called Crimson Hexagon that was doing some of the leading work in sentiment analysis. And in English, we would find guys talking about a razor or Gillette. And um, uh, you know, if they said like, I love this smooth shave or whatever, then they were a positive. If they were like, shaving is okay, then they're kind of neutral and the negative was shaving is X. Even those three buckets, positive, neutral, and negative. So it's interpretation, first of all. But then the tools that Crimson Hexagon and all these other thought leaders back in the day used, uh, again, I think it's what really formed a lot of basic machine learning kind of logic. It's fantastic. The thing about Laura, which I think she's so good at telling people quickly or reminding people quickly and a lot of the work for this entire show is, and you guys have said so many great things both on this episode and in general, is, is just, because, uh, just because these, these technologies can be used to do this thing, which is, quote, not evil, it's still the constraint of, what, uh, of one vision of what is good society, right? Meaning what is the best society? What are the key performance indicators for what we're doing? And where the logic is, even with a term like, is someone happy if they buy this product? There's the context of, are we talking about momentary ephemeral happiness or mood? Or are we talking about a larger sense of well-being, which must incorporate factors that Laura knows about so explicitly, right? Because also that's going to help the marketers more too. Is, you know, John Havens experiencing momentary ephemeral happiness because I happen to be just, I just got a check for something I did in the mail or I just, you know, talked to my kids. Those things may seem esoteric, but they're not. The point is, is that we live in systems in our brain and in our hearts and in our communities and in our cultures and in our regions. And if those systems are not taken account for, then the constraints, and this is where Jonathan is so good with his uh, his logic of what are we optimizing for, you're not, not going to get the whole picture. So the two of them, and again, thanks so much because I thought you guys did such a good job like mining not just the expertise of them separately, but the intersection of how their different worlds can really, really enlighten uh, a broader, more holistic sense of measurement. Yeah, and I love the, the word that you use, just societal, <laughs> John, where it's like they, these are questions that we've been, we, quote unquote, have been asking ourselves as like humans for a long time. Uh, and I don't think that we can take like, you know, technology, I, I feel like sometimes we put it into this bucket of like, well, this is the technology sector or technologies over here. Um, and I feel like a lot of the, the scholars that either we've had on the show or, or Laura and Jonathan are getting us to recenter as like, no, this is not the separate thing, but our society informs technology and then technology informs society. And maybe our buckets uh, need to be either rearranged or looked at um, again. Yeah, my last comment, just because, uh, again, great show this time around. Um, uh, well, every time, but you know, great show is my point. Um, 
what a world it would be if, if anyone, whether it's the marketers like Jonathan was, was largely focusing on or the policymakers that Laura and the community level experts she often works with, the first questions were always, and I'm speaking here as John, you know, are our children, are our humans taken care of, right? Their well-being, their mental health. How about the planet? And not just are we harming the planet with emission standards we have to follow or corporate social responsibility, ESG stuff, which are kind of like the mandates, right? And those are good, good first tools, as it were, or existing tools to have that lens that we're going for on this show. But wouldn't it be just incredible even just to dream about what the world would look like, how different it would be, is if those things were thought about and measured first. And then the logic of the profits, which are critical. You have to have profits and money to keep things going. But the profits really came after those examinations came first. So the logic is if these things are taken care of, and by the way, kind of what we need to take care of first anyway, anyway right? People and the planet, because that's who we are. And it's not just people today, but the next six or seven or eight generations, which, which often, at least for me, a lot of indigenous traditions, that's where you hear what people talk about, six or seven or eight generations. What a beautiful way to think about if we take care of those two key things first and the money then or whatever is, sustains those things, then newsflash, that's genuine sustainability. So anyway, in terms of measurementality, again, great show and, and really, as always, love our little after talk. So thanks for the time. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org backslash measurementality. You can search for the series, respond to our tweets, and get involved by using the hashtag measurementality on Twitter and other social media sites. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. Catch our regular episodes every other week on Wednesdays and measurementality episodes monthly. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod, and as always, stay radical. <laughs>